Morning, everyone. This is Anna. My name is Etienne, and we are going to do the Bible reading for us this morning. If you do want to follow along on your phone or on your, your Bible, we are going to read from the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Exodus, chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. All right, Anna, go for it. Then Moses went back to the back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I, will, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you were dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I'll kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife cut off his son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him to say and also about the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed and then they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery they bowed down and worshipped. Good job, Anna. And Etienne, you didn't do too bad yourself. <laughs> you chose it. Um, so... Good morning, people of Pathway, both here in the flesh and those on Zoom. I have the pleasure of trying to unpack today's text. Uh, now, as I've already said, Etienne lovingly picked this one for me to work through and figure out what on earth is going on here. And as this is a particularly obscure passage, uh, please keep your Bibles handy. Uh, I suspect you might have similar questions to what I had uh, when I read this text. Now, Moses was just given this job by God, right? And now God wants to kill him? What on earth is that about? And what does Moses' son's foreskin have to do with this? 
How can this text apply to us today? Where is Jesus in this? I could go on. My point is, this passage is a weird one. So weird, in fact, that more than once in preparation for uh, today's sermon, uh, I read words like this in commentaries and on web pages. said this, This passage contains some of the most enigmatic verses in the whole Old Testament. Now, I had to Google what enigmatic was, but basically it means it's difficult to interpret or mysterious. So if I ever get a chance to pick a text for Etienne, you better look out. <laughs> um, so today's text is a little clunky and disjointed. Uh, hopefully this sermon will not be. So before we fly into it, I'd like to pray. So let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to share on this particular text this morning. Thanks for the journey I've been on uh, in understanding this and reading lots. And I pray that as I speak today that you would speak through me and that uh, I'll be able to convey what I've learned and uh, really, um, yeah, you would just that your words would be heard here, not mine, Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would leave here different people as a result of uh, exploring your text in your, in your Bible. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Should have tested this before. Oh, George is all over it. I'm not. Thanks, Georgia. Um, so, what on earth is all this about? So, I think it's helpful to know what happened before and after this story we just read. So, what happened just before today's text? It's a pretty famous story of God appearing to Moses in a burning bush. God speaks to Moses and tells him it's time to act. God wants to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt and he wants to use Moses as his spokesperson. Now, Moses argues, moans and tries to weasel his way out of it, but God doesn't let him. Instead, he gives him Aaron. Aaron would be the one to speak on behalf of Pharaoh, on behalf of Moses, on behalf of God. Anyway, after this encounter and being told to go to Egypt by God is where today's passage starts off. So that's what happens before today's story. Let's check out what happens after. God wants to rescue his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. And Moses plays a part in this little tiny thing called the Exodus. If you're familiar with the story, forgive me for explaining a little. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen up. It's one of the coolest stories in the Old Testament, I think. God's people found themselves in Egypt as slaves. The reason they ended up there is a little long-winded and perhaps hard to summarise, but basically, about 400 years before today's story, there was a famine in the land and some pretty unique family connections within Egypt brought a family there. That family grew and grew and grew and eventually ended up becoming a slave nation for Egypt. After a while, the Israelites cried out to God and asked him for deliverance. These were God's people and he wanted them back where they belong, under his care. So that's where Moses comes in. God used Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh, the boss man of Egypt, with plagues, ten of them. It was locusts, frogs, blood, darkness and death, just to name a few. They uh, don't sound fun, do they? Now, Pharaoh eventually gives in after losing his own firstborn son and says, I've had enough of this. Get out of here. The Israelites are freed from slavery. So Moses leads them out of Egypt. However, there was just a small problem. Pharaoh just lost his entire workforce. So shortly after releasing them, Pharaoh goes, hmm, who am I going to get to do all my work? So he changes his mind and decides he wants his slaves back. The Israelites are pursued by the Egyptians through the desert. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites wander through on dry ground 
and the Egyptians follow after them, in which God swamps them. The Red Sea comes back together and the whole Egyptian army is swallowed in the Red Sea. An incredible story. So now we know what happened either side of today's text. Let's get into it. If you look at the passage, you'll see it's in four chunks that don't necessarily flow nicely from one to the other. The first part details Moses asking permission from his father-in-law to take his wife and his kids to go to Egypt with him. And there's a confirmation from God saying that all the people in Egypt that wanted you dead are now no more. And there's some further instructions from God about what to do when he gets there. It's a pretty reasonable intro to today's story. Now the second part, that just seems to be thrown in there to make us go, what? <laughs> this very strange encounter where God wants to kill Moses. Moses' wife saves the day, however, and circumcises their son and touches him with the foreskin. What a weird thing to do. Now, the, uh, the third part completely shifts location and character in that the story shifts to Aaron, the guy who's going to be Moses' spokesperson. This paragraph gives some details around a divine meeting between Moses and Aaron, whereby Moses fills in Aaron about the plan and what God's told him uh, for rescuing the Israelites from Egypt. And then suddenly, in the last few verses, that little last chunk, Moses and Aaron are in Egypt and showing the elders and the Israelites the miraculous signs. Like I said, this text is clunky and disjointed and there is so much more in this strange chunk of 14 verses that we have time for today. So we're going to focus on a couple of things this morning. Anyone want to guess which parts? Let's address the elephant in the room, shall we? What on earth is going on that night? Moses is about to be killed by God and to save his life, Moses' wife pulls out some jagged old rock and circumcises their son. Just to be clear, I assume a bunch of us know what circumcision is. For those of you who don't, get ready to squirm in your seats. Circumcision is a small surgery and Google put it like this. It is a surgical removal of the skin, namely the foreskin covering the tip of the penis. I said penis in church, Reggie. (laughs) Weird, hey? It's just a bit strange. So Moses' son was not circumcised as an Israelite. And that's a big deal if you're an Old Testament believer who's going to lead a bunch of God's chosen people out of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land. Circumcision is part of a covenant that God made with Abraham nearly half a century prior to today's text. We'll see it first in Genesis 17. I'll read it from here. The real deal. So Genesis 17, starting at verse 10, says, This is my covenant with you, that's Abraham, and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household, or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So circumcision is a big deal in the Old Testament. Why on earth had Moses' son snuck under the radar when it came to circumcision? There are perhaps a few reasons. Moses, he grew up in Egypt. Remember, he's the kid who got put in the little basket and floated down the river and 
all that whole story. Anyway, Moses grew up in Egypt. He was raised as an Egyptian. And Egyptians did not circumcise as the Israelites did. Israelite circumcision, it symbolised who were God's people and who were not. This, and it had been some 450 years since God had made the covenant with Abraham. Now, chances are Moses wasn't all that familiar or passionate about this particular law. That and being married to a Midianite wife didn't help the cause either. Now, Midianites were opposed to the idea of infant circumcision. Midianites, to the best of our knowledge, circumcised once a man was engaged to be married. Now, apparently, there was sufficient time given to heal before the wedding, if anyone was wondering. So, it would seem Moses' son, Gershom, was raised a Midianite, perhaps out of respect for the in-laws. There are a few possible reasons, no concrete reasons, but a few possible reasons that Moses' son was not circumcised. Now, this is a problem if you're an Old Testament Israelite. Let's check out verse 14 of Genesis 17 again. I think it's up there. Yep. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Breaking God's covenant, that's kind of a big deal. Moses could not have led the people out of slavery and out of Egypt having broken the covenant with God. If, like me, you might be wondering, was God just skimming over Moses' resume again, you know, like Cert 4 in farming, a, uh, various leadership courses, his son's not circumcised, various, um, a prominent figure in Egypt. Hey, what? Point three? I didn't see that in an interview. Did God only just figure out that night that Moses' son was not circumcised and thought, oh, I better end this now before it goes bad? Hmm, apparently not. God knew. God knows everything. So why this sudden, somewhat, surprise attack on Moses' life? As one commentary I read put it, so Moses gets a first-hand experience of salvation. So Moses gets a first-hand experience of salvation. What do I mean by that? Moses was literally staring death in the face. Whatever it was that Moses faced, maybe it was sickness, maybe it was an injury, perhaps they were under enemy threat, who knows? The Bible doesn't say. Whatever it was that threatened his life, we do know that Moses and his family knew that he was on death row. They could see that he was going to die. However, thanks to Moses' wife, Zipporah, and presumably Gershom, his firstborn son, Moses' life was spared. Maybe it's helpful to think of God kind of firing a warning shot. This my little pistol. At Moses, warning shots are fired to get someone's attention and let the culprit know that they mean business. That and the next shot will not miss its target. God was not messing around here either. This was a powerful message to Moses that he better take God's covenant seriously or there will be trouble. Moses had a first-hand experience of salvation. Moses was saved by the blood. Now, there's a lot of emphasis placed on blood throughout the whole Bible, actually. The circumcision, sacrifices, the crucifixion of Jesus... Uh, an Old Testament uh, passage in Leviticus 17 verse 11 says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, atonement isn't a very common word that we use today. Uh, it means to be made right or whole when we are wrong or broken. So when the blood makes atonement for one's life, it means it pays for, it covers us. It makes us whole or clean once again. In the New Testament, Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, 
There is no forgiveness of sins. Now, we'll head back to this idea of being saved by the blood a little later on. Let's just check out another aspect of today's uh, text. The Exodus. Now, I touched on the story of the Exodus a little earlier on. It's a pretty famous story of how God stops at nothing to save his people and to show his strength. God cares for his people and perhaps, perhaps more than we know or appreciate. Let's look at verse 22 and 23 of Exodus 4 again. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. God calls him his firstborn son. Now this image of a protective father made me immediately think of a father like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. This movie is about a father rescuing his daughter from being taken and trafficked across Europe. There is an infamous scene where Liam Neeson, uh, the actor, forget the actual guy's name, but anyway, Liam Neeson just learned of his daughter's capture and he's on the phone to the captor. This is what he says. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. To which the guy on the other end of the phone responds, good luck, and hangs up. Anyway, my point is, God's particular set of skills far outweigh Liam Neeson's. That, and he feels incredibly protective over you, over me, over his people, much more so than Liam Neeson does for his daughter. Do we think of God like this? A God who stops at nothing to ensure his people remain close to him. The God who rescued his people, the Israelites, out of slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Now you might be thinking, why would God wait 400 years to save the Israelites? 400 years is an awfully long time. Or perhaps you're thinking, I'm suffering now. Why doesn't God save or help me? Now I don't blame you for thinking like this. I certainly have wrestled with these thoughts in the past and in preparation for this sermon. It all seems to boil down to timing. Not our timing, but God's. Now that might seem entirely unsatisfactory, I know. There is a sermon on this topic alone but not today. Maybe that's a good one for Etienne, actually. <laughs> but not today. Just know that God has orchestrated everything. We can't see what God sees, nor can we tell him what to do. It is essential to trust his judgment and timing for all things. So God would stop at nothing to save his people from the Egyptians, sending plagues, parting the Red Sea, leading them through the wilderness to the Promised Land. You know that he's done something even more incredible for us? Let's cast our minds back to the elephant in the room discussion we had a little earlier on. God's covenant of circumcision. We know circumcision was a big deal in the Old Testament. We know that it's a mark of who were God's people and who were not. We know there's a lot of emphasis placed on the blood being spilt for forgiveness of sins. And we saw that Moses' life was literally saved by his son's foreskin and the blood from it, which, by the way, his wife touched him with in order to mark Moses with that blood. Now, Moses' sin was made clear in that he had not kept God's covenant of circumcision. 
Gershom's blood was a substitute for Moses. Now this excerpt from a Bible commentary on this passage, it explains it a lot better than I can, so here it is, listen closely. Uh, oh, who's controlling this? That one. Yep. So, first God showed Moses the wages of sin by placing him under his divine wrath. But then God's deadly wrath turned aside, or propitiated, to use the proper term for it, by the blood of circumcision. Blood is mentioned specifically because in order to be delivered from death, Moses had to be touched by the blood of the sacrifice and thereby identified with it. Now he's not a full sacrifice, of course. Nevertheless, that small portion of circumcised skin represented Gershom's entire person, offered in Moses' place. Moses was saved from God's wrath by the blood shed by a substitute. Does that sound familiar? Saved from God's wrath by the blood shed by a substitute? Um, like Moses, humankind has consistently and continually messed things up. We deserve to be cast from God's presence and have no right to call him Father. But, and that is a big but, Jesus came for you, he came for me. God stopped at nothing to rescue his people from Pharaoh. God rescuing his people from the ruthless rule and enslavement of uh, Pharaoh is nothing compared to the rescuing from, of us from sin and darkness through Jesus dying on the cross. God really pulled out the big guns uh, when he sent Jesus to earth to live, to love, to teach, to die on the cross, to rise again, to conquer sin and death. Jesus' perfect sacrifice, his blood shed for us, for you, for me, defeated sin once and for all. Moses was saved by his blood, by his son's blood and sacrifice. We are saved by Christ's blood and sacrifice. Moses experienced first-hand salvation by the blood of his son. We experience salvation through the blood of God's son, Jesus. Jesus' blood was a substitute for our own on the cross. God has an intense, stop-at-nothing, all-consuming love for us, so much so that he would do more than send ten plagues and part the Red Sea, but rather send his own son, Jesus, to earth and to the cross to bleed for you. Do you know and believe this for yourself? Take a moment, once again, to appreciate what it is that God has done for you. Jesus, the Son of God, took the nails for you and for me. He made a way for us to be right with God. Oh, man. We are forgiven. Praise God for that every waking moment. Always finding practice until the real thing. All right. Is this new idea new for you? Is this idea new for you? Is it just plain strange to you? Or is Jesus nothing more to you than a word you say when you're frustrated or angry? I sure hope that someone here today... Oh, why am I even doing this? <laughs> All right, I sure hope that someone here today fits that category, that description. And that is why we do what we do. We have the best news ever. And if today is the first time you've heard it, Please speak to someone here. Chat with me, I'm not a bubbling mess. Chat with whoever you came with. Chat with Etienne, find someone here today to, uh, to share with, to chat with. We would love the opportunity to know you, to hear your thoughts, your questions, your experiences, to point you towards a God who is fiercely protective over you 
A God who loves you more than you can ever understand. A God who has forgiven you through Jesus' bloodshed and sacrifice for us. Now I'll wrap up with a final passage from 1 John 4, 9 and 10. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son to the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. God, whatever our lives look like, whether we've walked with you for decades, months or minutes, maybe we've never given you a thought until today. Whatever the case, you know us intimately. You love us fiercely and you want us back where we belong, under your care and in relationship with you. Draw us nearer to yourself today, God. Help us appreciate more and more the blood spilt for us. We want more of you in our lives, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name, whose precious blood was spilt for us. Amen.